So let me ask you a question. If you were to take a picture or paint a portrait of your family, what would it look like? You know, how would you pose the people? What would it be set up like? Would you have, you know, a handsome dad and a beautiful mom and 2.4 children? I don't know where the 0.4 comes from, but that's what they tell us. The typical family has 2.4 children, you know, there. Is that what it would look like? Maybe a dog over here, you know, a cat over there. Some, is that what your family would look like? You know, for some of you, yeah, it, it would. For others, You might have, it might be one of those panoramic pictures. You ever see the ones that are really, really long and wide, you know? And it's, it's, uh, you've got uh, several what you might call families there, but they're all related to one another. You've got the mom and the dad and the 2.4 kids, but you've got grandparents over here and aunts and uncles over here and cousins and nephews and nieces and, you know, that sort of thing. And you're all sitting around at the uh, Thanksgiving dinner table and uh, just looking forward to sharing that extended family time together. And that's what you think of uh, when you think of family. Uh, Would it be maybe a smiling group of people at the bottom of a ski slope in Colorado and you've just made a run down there together and you're, you know, you're a little bit sweaty but it's cold and your cheeks are red and rosy and you're, this is, you know, you're just saying, this is it. You know, this is the picture that I have of my family. Um, or would it be a picture of a, a couple and uh, they're getting a little bit older and... Uh, maybe a little bit gray around the side, and there's only two of them. And they just celebrated their 25th anniversary, and they're thinking, that's it. It's just the two of us for the next 25 years because we can't have kids, and we wish we could. But we've come to grips with that, and it's okay, but there's still, there's a little hole in their hearts there. And, and, and it's sad but they're okay because they've got each other. Or maybe it's a mom, single mom, with three kids, and they are looking pretty tired. They're looking pretty haggard. They're running a little bit ragged, and it's a difficult life. But that's the picture that they've got of of their family. Or maybe um, it looks at first like uh, a relatively average family, but there's a hole there because someone has died and they're no longer there, or maybe they've left the family. Or maybe it's a picture that has a tear right down the middle of it uh, between the parents, and the edges are very sharp and very ragged, and that tear uh, still hurts. And there's been some healing, but it's always there at, at some level. Or maybe one of the members is off to the side, separated from the rest of the family. They're in the picture, but they're estranged off on the side. Or maybe it's a single person, and they're there, and there's nobody around them except maybe a couple of faded images in the background that are 20 or 30 or or 40 years faded in the background. And, And that's how you see yourself, and that's how you see your family, or the lack thereof. And that's a very real thing, I think, that some maybe even here today are going through. Um... Is it a happy picture? Is it a sad picture? Is it somewhere in between? Or does it change from time to time? You know, what is your family picture like that? Where are you at this point in your family life? God uh, loves each and every family. Each family is important to God. And families come in all shapes and all sizes, 
different configurations, and they change as life goes on. But each one is important to God because each is composed of people whom he created, whom he created and whom he loves and whom he cares about and who he wants to bless. And so uh, whatever your family looks like, it's something that's important to God and, and ought to be important to us as well. God made us to be relational beings. He created us for companionship. He created us for relationship. And we intuitively know this. And one of the reasons that we know it is because when we don't have it, when we don't have companionship, when we don't have friendship, when our family is hurting or broken, we hurt. We feel that lack. That it's, there's a void inside of us that's missing at some times. And so when we... When we're hurting, we intuitively understand that God wants for us to have companionship. He wants for us to have relationship. He wants for us to have human love uh, from, from one another. And so uh, sometimes our closest relationships are the most challenging, as Steve was mentioning. And sometimes our closest relationships are the ones that we come back to for strength. And it's just sort of strange that our highest highs and our lowest lows can be experienced in our families. But that's the way that it is. And by God's grace, we can find growth and we can find comfort and we can find healing and we can find companionship and we can find love and we can find support and we can find security in our families. And some of you... Some of you are in a situation where you're single and your family, maybe the folks here at Renaissance, I've talked to folks who have said, you know what, my blood relatives, it's just not cutting it right now in my life. But those here at Renaissance, this is where I'm finding my family. And sometimes God blesses us in that way. But by his grace, each of us, I hope, can have that kind of a core unit that can be helpful to us. God values the family. Uh, and, and in his sight, each family, whatever it looks like, is priceless. It is worth an infinite amount, and he cares about it deeply. And I think that's at least in part because he created it. Uh, God created us with that need for companionship. He didn't mean us to be alone, and his primary means of fulfilling that need in us, of providing for that need, is the family. Take a look. Uh, let's take a look here at Genesis chapter 2. Second chapter in the Bible, God has just finished creating. He has made Adam the first man, and we're going to pick up the action there in uh, verse 18. And God said, it's not good for the man, for Adam, to be alone. I will make a helper or a companion suitable for him. So God created Adam and said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. He's a relational being. I'm going to make a companion for him. Let me just stop there for, for, for just a minute. If you've been in church uh, here at Renaissance or somewhere else over a period of time, you may have heard of the idea that God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. You've heard of the three different persons of the Trinity. Christians refer to God as a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
God is a relational being in and of himself. There's relationship between the members of the Trinity. So it's not surprising that God would create us who he created in his image, meaning we look like him spiritually. It's not surprising that he would create us as relational beings since he himself is a relational being. So he creates Adam and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not because he didn't, because God messed up and he said, oops, he could have been self-sufficient in and of himself, could have not needed relationship. No, he created Adam with a need for relationship. So he says, it's not good for man to be alone. So what does he do? God takes all of the various animals that he's created and he parades them in front of Adam. He brings them to Adam and Adam names them. And he says, that one, I think I'll call a horse. That one, hey, that's cool. I'm going to call that dog. Ooh, that's a cat. We'll just skip that one there. You know, no, Adam actually, I think, liked cats and dogs and all the different animals. I'm a dog person. I'm sorry for you cat people out there. You know, it's okay. God loves you too, you know. And, and you say yes, and he loves you too, Clay, except I might not right this moment. But the, the point is, God brings all of these animals to Adam and Adam sees each of them and he names them. And in, that, in Hebrew society, in the days of the Old Testament, naming something was, names often had to do with the characteristic of that particular thing. So as Adam's naming the animals, I think these names had some significance to them. But anyway, as Adam names all of these different animals, when he gets to the end, look at what, uh, what God says down in verse 20. But for Adam, no suitable helper or companion was found. None of those animals, whether it's the dog or the cat or whatever it is, none of those things was a suitable helper or a suitable companion for Adam. None of those completed him. None could meet the need for companionship that God had put in Adam. So before we read, (coughs) excuse me, before we read further, why would God do that? I mean, why do you think God would parade all the animals in front of Adam knowing full well that none of them was going to meet that need that he had for relationship, that he, that the need that he had for companionship? I think at least in part, it's to give Adam a greater appreciation for the one whom he made specifically to be that companion for Adam, the one who was designed exactly for him, who could complete him, who could be his life partner together. And so that's what God did. So God made Eve a woman, uh, and he brought her to Adam. And in verse 23, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And we've got a word play there in English, man and woman. And there's a relationship between those two. And in the original Hebrew as well, there's a word play, a relationship between the word for man and the word for woman. They're related to one another. They are companions of one another. In verse 24, God says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Or as another translation puts it, they will become a new family. And so what did God do? He created Adam with a need for relationship. He made him as a relational being like God himself. And then he created a woman. He created a man and a woman, and they became the first family. And so the way that God fulfilled our good need for relationship and for companionship is through the family. And that was the beginning of the first family here on the earth. Um, so as I was chewing on this, on this concept, actually uh, uh, a year and a half ago, 
when, uh, for those of you who are visiting with us here, we, uh, the series that we're doing this summer, we call The Best of Renaissance 2009. And uh, back in the month of May, the folks who are regulars here at Renaissance got to vote on the messages that they would like to hear a second time or they'd like to bring a friend to be able to hear. So uh, Pastor Rich and I take different messages that we've done before. We kind of rework them a little bit and we do them again over the summer so that you guys can hear those again. And so when I did this one um, about a year and a half ago, I was really struck by this idea that when God created the universe, he created a family at the very beginning. And when God entered the universe, he entered it through a family. Jesus was born into a human family. He didn't just appear on the scene as a fully grown adult male. He appeared as a little baby with a father and a mother and eventually brothers and sisters. And I was thinking about this and you ask sort of, well, why would God do that? I mean, Jesus' ministry started when he was about 30 years old, meaning the focus time of his life when he was doing his, his public ministry, all the, the speaking and the healings and the miracles and all these other things that he did, that all started when he was about 30 years old and it lasted for about three and a half years. Why didn't Jesus just kind of show up on the scene as a 30-year-old adult male and, uh, and, and then do his thing and, and then die, etc. Why didn't, why didn't God do it that way? I mean, there was no FBI then. They couldn't have tracked his, his heritage and found out that he just kind of showed up from the, from the backside of the desert, walked into Jerusalem one day and started you know, speaking. Um, why would God do that? I think at least part of the reason is because he wanted uh, Jesus to have the experience of growing up in a family and so that he would experience the highs and the lows, the joys and the sorrows, the blessings and the challenges of being in a family. God values the family, and it was important enough to him that when he came to the earth as a human being, he came through the agency, through the vehicle of a family. And Jesus spent about 30 years living uh, at home with his family. And so he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to have joys and sorrows and challenges and great times and high times and low times and and everything in between. So what I want us to do is take a look at a couple of uh, incidents from Jesus' family life. And the first one I want to look at is from early on uh, in Jesus' three-year ministry, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 3. And uh, Jesus had been uh, speaking for a, a number of months at least at this point, and he was gathering more and more crowds as he went to different places. More and more people wanted him to, to, to hear him. And so one time, uh, verse 20 of Mark chapter 3, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, and it was so big that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. The guy has gone insane. Now, think about this for a minute. The crowd is so big. There's got to be, you know, maybe a hundred or more people hanging out in this house. They're hanging out the windows. They're hanging out the doors. They're all crowded around, and it's so busy and so crowded, they don't have time to stop and eat. And it's not like he could say to a couple of his buddies, hey, go off to the Heaven Eleven, bring us back, you know, some, some subs or whatever it is, you know, and we're going to have lunch. You can't do that. It's not working. So his family sees this and they say, the guy's going nuts. Hey, go get him and bring him back because something is wrong here. 
Now, wouldn't you have just loved to have been a fly on the wall in Jesus' house that afternoon? And what are they saying? You know, Jesus, what do you have, like some sort of a Messiah complex? What is the deal with you? You know, what are you thinking? You know, and put yourself in Jesus' shoes, though, for a minute. His family, the people he grew up with, didn't understand him. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know what his mission was. Have you ever had that situation in your life where your family doesn't understand you? Where they, (laughs) there we go. We got some over here, you know. When I, was a, when I was a chaplain at Princeton for 13 years, time and time and time again, students would come to me and say, you know, my family just doesn't get me. I love them, but it hurts so much. I, I think God has made me to be a, a musician or an artist, but they want me to be an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, whatever it is. And it's just causing great pain for both the, the kid and the parents, you know. Jesus knows what that's like because he's been through that situation. I was, uh, after the first service, I was talking to some of the, uh, some of the guys and, and folks up here, the musicians, and uh, they love to tell different musician jokes. And they said, hey, there's a bunch that would go great with what you were just talking about. So we're going to take a little time out. I'm going to tell you a couple of musician jokes here that fit with this. So they said, so, so here's one. Uh, what do musicians say at work? You want fries with that? <laughs> What do you call a musician in a suit? The defendant. (laughs) What do you call a musician without a girlfriend? Homeless. (laughs) What did, here's a good one, here's a good one. What did the drummer get on his IQ test? Drool. Isn't that good? There you go. And I think it's partly because, you know, they tell these jokes, I think, to, you know, it just makes them feel better, you know, because sometimes, I don't know, maybe their families don't understand them, you know. We do. At Renaissance, we love them, you know, and hey, it's great. Thank, thank God for the wonderful musicians that we have here. But I bet that almost all of us at some time or another in our lives have had our family members not understand us. And we can joke about the whole musician thing or the artist thing or the you want fries with that thing. But when it really happens, it really does hurt. And Jesus can say, you know what? I've been there. I've done that. I know what it feels like. And I love you and I care for you. And we can turn, for him, turn to him uh, for comfort at that t- you know, in those times in our lives. Let's take a look at a scene uh, from the end of Jesus' life. Uh, Actually, it's the last day, probably the last hour or so of his life. He's hanging on the cross. He's been crucified, nailed to a cross. uh, And we're going to pick up uh, the action here in John chapter 19, verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, to his mother, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into, this disciple took her into his home. Now, John, the author of this gospel, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, is the apostle John, and he is referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's a, 
it's a sort of a humble, modest way of referring to himself rather than saying, and so as Jesus was hanging there on the cross, he looked at Mary and said to me, John, take, you know, Mary, take, take my mother into your house. So he referred to himself sort of in the third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But think about this scene for a second here. You've got Jesus. He has just spent the entire night awake because he's been being beaten and whipped and tortured and mocked and put on two different trials, and now he's been crucified, nailed to a cross, he's bleeding to death, he's suffocating to death, and where does his thought turn? His thought turns to his mother who is sitting there or standing there near the cross and he sees her. He sees the woman who raised him, who loved him, who was there for him, who of all of the people whom he knew on the earth, Mary, his mother, understood him better than anybody else. She understood who he was. She understood what his mission was. And she loved him with an incredible love. And Jesus sees her there and he's concerned for her welfare. And so he turns to John, who is Jesus' best earthly friend. He turns to his best friend and says, take care of my mom. Take care of my mother. And mom, you're going to go and live with John now. And think of that picture. Jesus, his family was so important to him that that was one of the last things that he did while he was alive on the earth. He made sure that his mother was being taken care of. Uh, A year and a half or so ago, I was in Indianapolis visiting a friend of mine who was dying of cancer. He's a single guy, had never been married, didn't have any brothers or sisters. His dad had died years before. And he was concerned because he knew he was going to be dying soon and he actually died a week later. He was concerned for the welfare of his mother and his mother was in an extended care facility and needed help and he wanted to make sure that she was going to be well cared for. And that was one of his last things that he was able to do was to make sure that his mom was provided for because his family, in that case his mom, was important to him. And the same thing was true for Jesus. Jesus' family was important to him and he wanted to make sure that his mother was well taken care of. But if you're paying close attention to that, a question that might come up in your mind is, well, why was Jesus doing this? Where was Joseph? Where was Mary's husband? And most scholars think that by this time, Joseph had probably died because if he had been alive, he would have been in the picture and he would have been taking care of Mary. And so what does that say? Jesus has experienced the death of a loved one as well. He knows what it's like to lose one whom you care about. He knows what it's like to have a broken family in that way. So when we're going, whatever we're going through, whether it's our family members not understanding us, whether it's a loved one dying, whether it's sickness, whatever it is, Jesus can say, you know what? I've been there. I've done that. I know what it feels like. Why don't you come to me for comfort? Because I can offer you that comfort. I can offer you that hope. I can offer you that peace that can sustain you in the midst of the trials of your family. And I also know the joys of a family and I also know the blessings of being in a family and the fun times and the good times as well. And that's why I've given you a family and and my hope and my prayer is that we'll all experience that. So Jesus has been through the brokenness of a family with broken family members. He knows what the brokenness of the world is like with death and disease and sickness and pain and he knows what the joys are as well. So where do we go from here? How do we take this, uh, some of these ideas that we've talked about and how do we 
strengthen our families? You know, none of them are perfect. Mine's not perfect. Yours are not perfect. How do we strengthen our families? How do we grow in our families? How do we love our family members more? One, one idea I want to give to you is think about cherishing your family members, Think about cherishing your family members. It's a little bit of an unusual word. Unless you're a fan of, of a band called The Association, you probably don't use that word, you know, cherish. A few of you are laughing, so you know what I'm referring to. Band, what is it, 70s, I think, or so? Anyway, they, um, you know, it, this word cherish is not a common word. The word love is much more common. And I could have used that word, but the word love has such a broad range of meaning that I decided to use a more unusual one that's a little more narrow. And here's why. I love chocolate, and I love coffee ice cream, and I love the Dallas Cowboys, and I love, you know, and you name it, Broadway shows or, you know, going to the spa or skiing in Colorado. I love all these things. And that's a good word. You know, it's a good way to use the word love. But do I love my wife in the same way that I love chocolate? I hope not. You know, I hope there's a, something a little bit different there. Why? Because when I say I love chocolate, it's sort of like what chocolate can do for me. It's a very self-centered, self-focused, self-oriented sort of thing. But cherish, if I said I cherish chocolate, you all would say, you got, we're going to talk to you. You need a psychiatrist there. Something is wrong with you if you're cherishing chocolate. But if I say I cherish my wife Anne, you're going to say, oh, isn't that so nice? You know, and, and, and it's going to be a very positive sort of thing. And it's going to give you a warm feeling and all that. Why? Because cherish is saying, I care about the one I cherish. I want the best for them. I want them to flourish. I want them to be blessed. I want good for them. And that's the way we ought to look at our family members. We ought to cherish them. We ought to think about them and their needs. We're all familiar with the golden rule. I think, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or as Jesus puts it, love your neighbor as yourself. And, uh, you know, think about that and how you kind of apply that in your family. And I've had conversations with people over the years, hundreds of conversations about how do we apply the golden rule. So you think of it this way, you know, if I like Mexican food, I think, okay, well, I'll take my family out for Mexican food because I will do for them as I would want them to do for me. So I would like them to take me for Mexican food, so I'll take them for Mexican food. Or I would like them to take me to a baseball game, so I'm going to take them to a baseball game. Or I'd like them to take me to a Broadway show, so I'm going to take them to a Broadway show. Or I would like for someone to give me a universal remote for the TV, so I'm going to give my wife one for her birthday. (laughs) Yeah, so I can have the universal remote, right? You know? Okay? You see the point here? If that's as far as we take it, it's hit or miss at best. Sometimes it works if they like Mexican food or if they like Broadway. But when it comes to the universal remote, we see it that way and we realize that's not exactly the point of the golden rule. What I want, if someone's going to apply the golden rule to me, I want someone to say, who is Clay? What is he like? What makes him tick? What's important to him? What would be meaningful to him? And then have them do that for me. So I shouldn't think, if I'm thinking of my wife, Anne, I shouldn't say, oh, I'd like a universal remote. I'm going to give it to her. I should think, you know what she would really like is, and then do that for her. That's applying the golden rule. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. And in order to do that, in order to 
not fall prey to the universal remote kind of golden rule sort of thing. You've got to become a student of your family. You've got to become a student of your family members. You've got to spend time. And you may have been with your family for one week, one month, one year, or 50 years. But if you're not a student of your family, it's going to be really hard for you to cherish them. It's going to be really hard for you to love them in a way that's meaningful to them. Study them. Find out what makes them tick. What do they like? What do they dislike? What excites them? What bores them? What makes them afraid? What are they concerned about? What are they motivated by? And then start thinking, how can I show them in a way that's meaningful to them that I really care about them? So maybe for you know, guys, for your wife, maybe it's giving her an afternoon with the girls, uh, not the children, girls, but her girlfriends off at the spa, you know, and uh, no kids, just her and her girlfriends, and they're just hanging out there and having a great time. And what's funny is uh, a year and a half ago when I gave this message, after the first service, a couple came up to me, and the wife is being me, and she says, you know what he did for me yesterday? Exactly what you said. He took the kids, and I went off to the spa, and I had a great time with my friends, and she's just beaming, and he is sitting there doing this. He's like, I am set. And the kids are saying, man, Dad, you are the greatest. And, you know, why? Because they recognized that he had done something that was meaningful to her and he had shown her that, she, that he cherished her in a way that was meaningful to her. Or, or dads, you know, I was thinking about this with my own kids. Sit down and watch a movie that one of your kids wants to watch without making fun of it. And that's the tough part. I'll sit there and watch it, but I'll say, oh, that's kind of corny, you know, that sort of thing. I got to do it without making fun of it, you know? And I see some of you nodding there, you know? Or, you know, moms or, or wives, give, give your husband an afternoon to watch baseball or to, to go play golf and don't ask him a lot of questions about how the baseball game works and that sort of thing. He'll talk to you later. Now, guys, you can explain it to your wife if she wants to. And I know I'm being sort of a stereotypical thing there. Maybe you guys like to watch it together. That's fine. Just think about what's meaningful to your family. I don't know what's meaningful to you and to your family. But if I don't know it about my own family, then it's going to be a much weaker family. Conversely, if I take the time to study Anne and Sarah and Christine and my mom and my brother and others in my extended family and find out what's important to them, then I'm going to be in a position to be able to show them that kind of love, to cherish them, to do something that's meaningful to them. And our relationship's going to be strengthened. And some of the brokenness that's there is going to be healed. And our home is going to become more and more of a place of refuge and security and love and warmth and companionship the way that God intended it to be. And so my challenge uh, for you guys, here's your homework. You come to church, you get homework, at least once in a while when I'm speaking. I think Rich does it from time to time too. But here's the homework for this month, the month of August. Study your family members and pick one thing that you can do for each family member that would be meaningful for them. Not meaningful to you, but meaningful for them. So whether it's taking them to a show or whether it's taking them to a a restaurant that they like or playing a, a game with them or whatever it is. If it's a family member who's far away off in California, call them up on the phone and spend an hour or two talking with them about what they want to talk about. Don't tell them all what's going on with you and all your woes and, you know, or excitements. T- 
talk to them about what they want to talk about. You get the point. Study your family members, figure out what's meaningful to them, and do something for them during the month of August. And I guarantee you, if you do that and it becomes a habit, not just August, but August and September and October, and it becomes second nature to you, you're going to see strengthening, you're going to see healing, you're going to see blessing, you're going to see your family becoming more and more and more the way that God designed it to be. God has created us with a need for relationship and the primary way in which he fulfills that is in our relationship with our family members. Yes, it can be fulfilled in relationship with others here at Renaissance as well and certainly show others here how you cherish them in meaningful ways. But for each of us, think and pray about how you can show that kind of love to those who love you as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're a God of love and a God of grace, a God who has shown us love in ways that we need and that's meaningful to us. I thank you for creating us with a need for relationship and putting us in families. And uh, thank you for each of our family members. Help us, Father, to become better students of them and to think about how we can uh, be a blessing to them, how we can show them that we love and that we cherish them. And then may we act on that even this month. And as we do so, may you strengthen our families that we might uh, bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.